Elu Elu Kim Chaim. Can two opposite things really both be true? And does it apply to Dr. Fauci's ever-changing guidelines? I'm Avi Cohen. I'm Mati Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. Today, we are going to be talking about Elu Elu Kim Chaim, which literally translates as these and these are the words of the living God. Now, what this phrase is used to mean is that both opinions of a particular argument, a lochic discussion, a tired discussion, both opinions are true. Now, this is hard for a lot of people to accept because a lot of times the discussion are opposites. So one person says this and this was done in the base of Mekdash, and the other one says, no, this and this was done in the base of Mekdash. Well, seemingly, only one of the two was actually done in the base of Mekdash. Also in Alacha. One person says, this is the right approach. The other one says, no, this is the right approach. It's usr. It's mutter. How can both of those things be true? So we'll be taking you through three basic approaches in understanding Elu Elu. And then at the end, we're going to try to synthesize the three approaches to show you how all three could be agreeing with each other. It's also important to emphasize that in no way do any of the understandings of Elu Elu mean that psak, the way we decide the halacha, can be understood based on Elu Velu Kim Chaim. In other words, you can't say that because, oh, well, the Gemara brings down two positions and both of them are Divrila Kim Chaim, I can do like either one of them. Psak is understood as, uh, is Paskin through the Rive, through a majority. That's how we come to our halachic decisions. And it has nothing to do with the fact that one or the other may be Divrila Kim Chaim. In fact, we're going to see the opposite is that in Halacha, we're going to see we don't Paskin like Remeyer, even though he was way smarter than the Chachamim. And his opinion was most probably, so to speak, correct. We still don't poskin like him because the rove of the of the Sanhedrin couldn't understand his his ideas. And since they couldn't understand them, they weren't saying they were not true. But since they couldn't understand them, they couldn't poskin. They couldn't rule in accordance with him. So you see, halacha doesn't have to do with the veracity of either side of the argument. Halacha has to do with what makes sense to the most of the Sanhedrin. That becomes the halacha. So the phrase Elu Velu Divrelikim Chaim is mentioned a couple of times in the Gemara, but perhaps the most famous of which is in Erevin Dav Yud Gimel Amid Beis, 13b for you art scroll people. The Gemara says that for three years, Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel argued. Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, the schools of Shammai and Hillel. Shammai and Hillel, in fact, only had three arguments throughout their long rabbinic career, but their Talmidim, their students, basically fight on every page of the Gemara. So they argued for three years, each one saying that the Halacha follows them. If you think that's a long argument, you probably aren't married. <laughs> nice one, Avi. Finally, a boss call shouts out from the heavens and says, Elu ve'elu devrelikim chaim. But the halacha follows Beisela. So immediately we have this tension and we really have a question. If Elu ve'elu devrelikim chaim, if both opinions are the word of Hashem, then why does the halacha follow Beisela? Forget Beisela over Beishamai. Why does the halacha follow anybody? Both of them are the words of God. Why can't I do whatever I want? So that would be the first question. How does Elu Elu kind of interact with the halacha? Yeah, so I would say right off the bat, you're seeing that Elu Elu Tivlikim Chaim doesn't mean the halacha should follow. It, it, in fact, it seems to have nothing to do with the halacha. That Elu Elu Tivlikim Chaim is a standalone clause that gives veracity to both sides, despite not being both sides according to halacha. Right. Another question that can be asked is, who does this apply to? Or what does this apply to? This Gemara applies it to Machloksim between Beisham and Beisillel. 
which famously the, the Mishnah in Perkei says that Beisham Bezhil was one of the Machleksim, which were L'Shem Shemaim, and which will last forever because it's L'Shem Shemaim. So maybe it just applies to Beisham Bezhil. Is it any accepted statement that this concept applies to? Is it only in Halacha, but not in reality? Which then means, this Gemara is not clear. By Halacha and, and versus reality, we mean there's a lot of discussions in the Gemara that relate to historical events um, or previous practices, such as what they did in the base of Mikdash or who was Avram's second wife, or, you know, things like that. I don't know if there's mechleikas about that, but I'm saying historical events, where there's mechleikism on historical events, that is much harder to accept right off the bat that both could be Divrilikim Chaim, because one of them literally didn't happen. But by a more abstract or, or hypothetical conversation about Allah, you can say, well, even though we don't follow one of them, there was nothing wrong with his thinking, and it's easier to accept the concept of Elu Velu Divrilikim Chaim. So while at first glance it seems simpler to apply Elu Velu only to Machleksim regarding Halacha, arguments regarding Halacha and not to historical realities, we find a Gemara in Gittin on Vavam and Beis which applies it to a historical argument, where Rabbi Vyasser and Rabbi Yenison argue about a certain story in Nach regarding Pelagish Begiva, whether the husband got mad at his concubine because he found a fly or he found a hair in his food. Rabbi Vyasser, who was the one who said he found a fly, met Eliyahu and Navi, and asked him, what is Hashem learning, so to speak? And he said, oh, Hashem happens to be in this sugya, in this topic of the Pilagish Begiva, of this concubine. So he asked, oh, well, what was it? Was it a fly or a hair? And Eliyahu said, Elu ve'elu divrelikim chaim. He found a fly and wasn't so bothered by it, and then he found a hair, and that was a straw that broke the camel's back, and that's what bothered him. So it's interesting. It seems like the Gemara, first off, we see that the Gemara applies Elu Ve'elu Divlikim Chaim by an historical argument. Not only that, the Gemara seems to say that both events actually occurred. The way the Gemara formats the understanding of Elu Ve'elu Divlikim Chaim is that what role did each event take place in the Pusuk's conclusion that he was bothered that his concubine was unfaithful to him? Now, this works for this Machlechus because you can say both actually occurred. He found a fly, and he also found a hair, and he was bothered by both, but the final straw was the hair, not the fly. But they both contributed to his being bothered. There are certain Mechleksim, however, where it's going to be much more difficult to say this. For example, Mechleksim where the historical realities are at odds. So take one right off the bat. There's a Mechleks in the Gemara, or there's two different Midrashim or God to the Gemara, if what was Esther's relationship to Mordechai? Was she merely an adopted child, or did Mordechai actually marry her? Now, those are different opinions about a different reality. They can't both be true in the sense that she can't both be married and not married. So it's different than the fly and the hair. So the question is, do we apply Divrilikim Chaim also to that sort of argument about historical reality where it doesn't seem so easy to make it out that both actually occurred? So we have to keep this in mind as we're going through the approaches to see Will it apply to all historical realities or only some? I do want to point out one more thing, which is not really related to our topic, but it is cool to see, which is that it's clear from this Gemara that the Gemara held they had an ability to derive historical facts from Sukkim because there was obviously no Kabbalah about this because they had to ask Eliyahu and Avi, but they both, by learning the Pasuk, derived that either a fly or a hair was involved, and when they asked Eliyahu and Avi, he corroborated that fact, that, that fact. So a lot of people claim that Chazal didn't have access. They only had access to information about Allah. They didn't have the ability to derive historical facts or scientific facts 
from Sukkim, you see clear from this Gemara that they had the ability to derive historical facts and they would corroborate it with Elion Navi saying Hashem said that those are the facts. So now we can start on the approaches taken by the Rishonim and Achronim in understanding Elu Ve'elu Devrelechem Chaim. So the first approach that we're going to bring down is perhaps the simplest to understand. Um, it's very non-metaphysical. It's very practical understanding. This is brought down in the Nesivas HaMishpat in his introduction, where he says that although halachic errors are false, they serve an important function of establishing the truth. For a person can't arrive at the truth without first negating the false. In other words, in all thought processes, the way to arrive at the correct position and fully understand the correct position is by first negating the incorrect positions. It's a process. There's a uh, he brings down a parable of a diver who dives down and picks up a bunch of things. And he'll find gems among those things, but he'll also inevitably find rocks and dirt, which he has to discard in order to get the jewels at the end. And this understanding is really based on a mission in Edias. In Parak Aleph, Mishnah Vav, which explains that the reason we mention minority opinions, which are not Paskin like Lalacha, is in order to refute it. So if a person says, oh, I heard there's a certain tradition that the Halacha is X, we can say... Yes, you heard that tradition from this person who is a minority position, and therefore it's negated. And that's the reason we bring down these false positions. Now, this mission is not talking about Tiverli Kim Chaim. This mission is actually talking about halacha, and is explaining why you would bring down an incorrect halachic opinion in a Mishnah, which is meant to teach halacha. I think this is being borrowed, though, to say that just like in halacha, we bring down the the non-true opinion or the non-halachic opinion to shed light or help us... Um, to help us see the halachic position in a clearer manner, so too, in Eli Be'elu every opinion that is attempting to strive to understand the truth is part of the process of uncovering truth. That doesn't mean, though, that both positions are correct. And this, I think, is said more explicitly by the Chida in, Bavim, in his commentary to Bav Metziah uh, 59b, or Nun Tesamad Beis. It's also a Havamin of the Chida in Erevin, in our Gemara over here, which he says as follows. He said, one position is false. But it's brought down to help understand the truth in a similar way that darkness allows light to shine bright. If you have a candle in the sun, you don't see the candle. You don't see what the candle is doing. But you bring that candle into a dark room, all of a sudden you see what the candle could bring to your life. So to here, when you see an incorrect position, it really brings out the brilliance and the, the, the accuracy of the correct opinion. And that is why Eliv Elu Kim Chaim. Now this is one of the reasons why the Talmud Bavli is more authoritative than Tommy Yushalmi. If you if anybody studied the Yushalmi, they would see that in the Yushalmi is a lot less machlaikis, there's a lot less shaklavataria, there's a lot less give given uh, back and forth in the Gemara. It's just, everything's clear cut. But in that sense, you don't have a clearer picture of the Lacha because you haven't gone through the mental process of purifying and separating out the truth from the false, which gives you a much more uh, conclusive or exhaustive understanding of the true opinion. Right, and the reason it's referred to as Divre Elikim Chaim, even though one is technically false, is because they both help you arrive at the truth, and therefore they're both an in- integral part of the Torah process, understanding the false position to help understand the true position. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that any two opinions, no matter how false one of them is, would get the stamp Divre Elikim Chaim. You have to be talking about two Tomi Chaim, Two Tanayim, two Amarayim, who are both using their abilities and their understanding of how to paskin and the tire sources honestly with integrity to try to figure out the answer. If one of them erred slightly, 
that would still be considered Tevar Lakim because they're using the method and therefore they're part of the entire process of figuring out truth. If somebody gives an absolutely incorrect opinion based on nothing, that obviously wouldn't get Tevar Lakim Chaim because it doesn't even help you understand the truth because it's not dealing with the same subject material as the true opinion. So on this approach, there's a few questions that can be asked. Fundamentally, why would a false position be called Divrei Lekim Chaim? And the Ron in his drasha is actually bothered by this question in his drasha. Hey, you can see there he goes at length to try to answer it, but it's a little bit difficult to call a false position Divrei Lekim Chaim, even though it's part of the process. Additionally, we know that halakhically, many times you're allowed to rely on a minority position in times of you know great need. If you're going to lose a lot of money or you're going to be in a lot of tsar or things like that. Seemingly, if the position is incorrect, it shouldn't matter what state you're in. You can't rely on it because it's incorrect. As opposed to if they're both correct, we just have to pick one for whatever reason you pick one over the other because it's a majority, etc. It seems less clear why you should be allowed to rely on a incorrect position. Another question is that we see uh, times throughout the Gemara that we don't poskin like the smartest people, even though we know they were smarter and we know they were more likely to be correct. In fact, sometimes we know explicitly they were correct, but we still don't follow them. We follow the majority. So, for example, in that same Gemara in Ervin, Yud Gimel Amin Beis, Remeir, it said Remeir was smarter than the Chum. And they knew that he can give an argument for their position, he can give an argument for his position, and he would convince everybody. But they didn't poskin like him because they just couldn't understand the depths of his understanding. Now, I don't understand. If we're trying to find the correct shita and there's an incorrect answer, there's an incorrect derivation of Allah, and there's a correct derivation of Allah, well, then why wouldn't you just poskin like the smartest guy in the room? Now, you could just say, well, that's the halachic process. The halachic process is follow the right. But that's kind of just kicking the can up the hill. Up the hill or is it down the hill? Up the hill because it keeps on falling. I don't think that's the shot. You kick fine. You're kicking the can up the hill because why did the Hashem set up a logic system where it forces you to hold of or conclude the wrong opinion? If you say they're both true, and one of them we have to pick halacha, then we can say, well, there's a logic process to to figure out what is the halacha, and I can give you a very good reason for that. We'll see later why there would be a logic process. That is rove to decide the lacha. But if one of them is correct, one of them is incorrect, always go with the smartest guy. This becomes even harder to understand in the famous Gemara of Rebelezer, the Mechlaikis Rebelezer versus the Chamim, by the Taner Beis Achanai, in Bav Metzia uh, 59b, or, or Samach Tes, uh, Nun Tes Amid Beis, where Abbaskal actually comes down and says, hey, guys, Rebelezer is correct. He's right. And the Chamim say, I don't care. Tyra's in, in, on earth, and we get to Baskin whichever way we see fit. By Rove. Now I understand. They know now they're wrong. So why in the world do they pass in that way? If all opinions are correct, fine. But if one opinion's wrong, why would you pass in that way? And I think there's a more fundamental question that we could bring this down, which is that there's two parts of the Tereshwal Peh. One of the parts of the Tereshwal Peh is laws that Hashem gave to Moshe explicitly. There's another part of the Tereshwal which are laws that the Chacham themselves are meant to derive using the 13 principles of derivation, the Yagmal Midas. Now, if you say that any conclusion drawn accurately from the 13 Midos are true, and Dibur Lekim Chaim means both opinions are true, then it makes sense why Hashem would give us two ways to uncover Tarsh Pet. One is through the subjective experience of Paskin and Alpirov, and the other one is through the 
objective, this is what Hashem told Moshe, this is the halacha. But if you say that human error can creep in and they can conclude the wrong halacha, then why in the world would Hashem make half of Teresh Balpeh subject to human error where they can come up with the wrong answer? The second approach can be found in Rashi and Ksubis Nun Zayin for 57a. The Gemara there says that two Amarayim, who will often have a disagreement, it's better to say that their disagreement is based on their own svaras, their own ideas, as opposed to saying that they're arguing about what their teacher had said. Rashi explains that the reason this is so is because if I argue, if me and Avi have an argument about what somebody said, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. But if we say, I don't really care what he said, this is what I'm saying because of what I think, and he's saying this is what I'm saying because of what I think, both ideas can be true in their own context. And Rashi quotes the phrase, Elu ve'elu lekim chaim, and says that both svars are meaningful because in different uh, scenarios, each svar could apply. Now, at this point of the conversation, it would seem from Rashi that only certain machleksim are Elu ve'elu lekim chaim, uh, because machleksim where they're actually having a disagreement as to what their Rebbe said, not just a disagreement in Svara, it would seem to be Rashi is saying one of them is factually incorrect. Now, I don't know if we have to say that, because you can also just say that whatever their Svara is, why they thought the Rebbe said that. Because again, they weren't just like parodying what the Rebbe said. When the Rebbe said a statement, they're uncovering what he meant based on their knowledge of Tyra and their Svara. That Svara, which led them to conclude that this must be what the Rebbe said, might have utility elsewhere and also might fit under Elevel Jivalikim Chaim, but you certainly don't see that explicitly from Rashi. So here we have a step above the first approach, because in the first approach we were saying that one is false and one is true, while here we're saying, no, both are true, but they're contextually true. In other words, one can be true in a certain scenario, while the other is true in a different scenario. So just for example, let's say I say I don't like driving in cars because... Um, it, you can't go to the bathroom in cars, and I get nauseous. So you'll say, okay, well, this is an RV, so there's a bathroom in the back. So that takes care of that problem. So you can see how giving these two reasons for a certain action, in certain scenarios, one thing will apply, while in certain scenarios, you know, this car doesn't have a bathroom, but I have nausea pills. So that's that uh, situation would knock out a different svar. So that's an example of where a different scenario might change a svar. The Medrash Shmuel brings out a different uh, difference, which might affect having these two different ideas. He says that the implementation of each shita merely depends on the time and place, but each opinion remains true. In other words, he adds the factor of time or locale to why a certain psak might apply here and not there. And we see this in the Gemara numerous times where you'll have certain cities that acted like a certain rabbi. Now, according to this approach, the reason you're able to act like this rabbi, even though he was a minority opinion, is because perhaps... For some reason, his opinion actually fit that locale better and fit Hashem's Ratzin in that particular location better than a different one. So Rav Gedalia Shar actually speaks this out in his Sefer or Gedalia on page 40 over there. He says that both opinions represent Hashem's will for Klal Yisrael, for Allah, but not universally. So for example, in Beishamai's community, Hashem's will was that we should follow the teachings of Beishamai. Elu ve'elu divulkim chaim. In Basil city, he wanted the Allah to follow Basil. Once the Allah became universal in Klal Yisrael, that we should follow Basil, that must mean Hashem's will was that all of Klal Yisrael should follow this particular Allah. And we could say, they're all MS, and Hashem wanted this opinion or that opinion to work out in the world in a certain format. When he wanted it to only be in Beishamai's opinion in his town, he did it there. But when he decided that it's now time for all of Klal Yisrael to have Basil's opinion for whatever reason... 
he had the MS in place of both opinions to apply it for a locale or universally. And the Amude Sheish in chapter 20, he likewise says that every rejected opinion, because it's brought down in the Gemara and therefore is part of Tyra, must be followed in a certain time or in a certain context. Otherwise, there'd be no point in bringing it down. So although we saw in the first approach that the point of bringing it down was to further clarify the second approach or the true approach, the Amude Sheish is saying that, no, the only reason to bring it down would be because it must be followed in a certain time. Now, this might uh, coincide or, or work well with the idea that in the future, in Mashiach time, we'll actually follow the Pinya Beishamai. Again, it's following this approach that these truths are not universal, but more contextual, and each one has its moment to shine, its time on the stage, if you know, you know what I mean. So, but there is a problem with this approach also, and, and let's take our example we gave by the car, right? So if you ask a kid, you ask somebody why, why they don't want to travel to, to New York, right? And they give two reasons. One of them is I get nauseous, and the other one is I need to use the bathroom. So let's say I have an RV with a bathroom. So the opinion that I don't want to go to the bathroom is the reason why I don't want to go to New York is incorrect for the current scenario. If I have a car and I have these great anti-nausea pills, the explanation that I don't want to go to New York because of nausea is incorrect. Now, it could work somewhere. It could be true in a vacuum, but it's not true here. And when they're having a mechlaikas, they're talking about here. Beishamai did not think that only in his city it should be the opinion of Beishamai. Basil did not think only in his city it should be the opinion of Basil. They both held at all times, at all places, this far is true. So when you say an Elu Elu there's still a little bit of falsehood to it because it's true contextually, but not true in the context that they're talking about. It's true in a different context. Right. I think another question that can be asked is, we mentioned from the Gemara and Gittin that Elu Ve'elu also applies to historical realities. Now, this contextual truth or, or following in a certain time or location does not fit so well with the historical reality. I can't say, well, if you live in Michigan, then the Mizbeach was 10 Amis. But if you lived in, uh, if you lived in Kentucky, then the Mizbeach was 20 Amis. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So, in terms of that, though, you could say, though, that in a theoretical base of Mekdash, or maybe in the third base of Mekdash, the Mizbeach will be of a different height, or it could have been in a different height in the first base of Mekdash, meaning there is room to maneuver it, but I agree with you, it does become a little more difficult, but there is room to maneuver um, the sort of theoretical historical events. You're right, history only takes place once, but at least you could say, theoretically, there is a truth in a different context. If different events preceded it, perhaps we would have had this other plan out of events that match matches this other true idea. So that's what leads us to our third approach. Before we get into the third approach, I just want to give a little bit of an introduction as to how the Tarsh Bapeh works. Okay, so there are a lot of disagreements, a lot of mechleksim in the Gemara. Um, and for the the unacclimated, you know, I, or the unacclimated reader, it seems confusing. Like, why are there so many mechleksim? Are they just, like, not on top of the topic? Or what's going on? How are they just agreeing on everything? They forget everything? So the Rambam in his introduction to the Parish Mishnayas, and, and I recommend it as a read for everybody. Anybody who has not gone through that, if you want to understand how Tarsh Balpeh works, you really need to go through the basics farm. The Akdamal Parish Mishnayas of the Rambam is one of those basics farm. Again, it's his intro to his commentary in the Mishnah. He wrote it as a teenager, but it has tremendous, tremendous chachma. Now, in that, he says that anybody who thinks that any machlaikas found in the Gemara comes from forgetting or misunderstanding, he said, is a fool. They don't know how to learn Gemara. They haven't looked at the sources properly. The reason why they're Mechlaikas is because there's two parts of Tarsh Balpeh. There's a part known as Divri Kabbalah, or Halacha Moshe Sinai is included in that, which are things that Hashem told Maisha, this is the Halacha. 
right? You have to sit in a sukkah on sukkahs. A lulav is this object. An esrig is this object. Which is why you don't have any machloksim in those areas. There's no two opinions what a lulav is. There are no two opinions what an esrig is. Then, there are halachas that Hashem never explicitly told Maisha that this is the halacha. Because guess what? There is no halacha. Rather, he gave it over to the Chama of each generation to use the 13 principles of derivation, which Hashem gave to Moshe, in order for each generation to derive new halachas. And anytime you see Machlaikis, says the Rambam, it's because Hashem never told Maisha what the halacha is. Hashem said, here's a Pasuk, here are the 13 principles, you guys figure it out and Paskin according to Rov. Now, with that in mind, when we say, see a Machlaikis and we say, well, one of them has to be incorrect, the question has to be asked, what do you mean incorrect? Hashem didn't have a halacha in front of him. It's not like Hashem said, oh, this is the correct halacha, here's the correct halacha, Maisha, and you guys might mess it up. He didn't say anything to Maisha like that. He said, here's a Pasuk, here's a 13 Midas, go figure it out, and Paskin according to the majority. So what is correct or incorrect? What backdrop of information are we working on to say it's correct or incorrect? Now, you can say, well, a misapplication of the Yugum Midas would be incorrect, but that's assuming that the application of the Yugum Midas can only yield one result. If it can yield more than one result, then you don't have to say that either form is correct or incorrect. And that's where our third approach takes us. So this third approach is most famously quoted in the name of the Ritva. The Ritva comes in that famous Gemara in Erevin, Yud Gimel and Bey is the one we quoted at the beginning of the podcast, which talks about the Machlokas based Shama Basil and brings down this phrase, Elu Beilu Dirvelikim Chaim. And the Ritva says, What does it mean, Elu Beilu Dirvelikim Chaim? And he explains that the French rabbis says that Hashim Mishul de Moshe. We be. <laughs> Sorry. Hashem showed Moshe 49 ways to Aser and 49 ways to Mater. 49 ways, ways to Beautiful. Make- 49 ways to make it tummy, 49 ways to make it tar, and he explained that he would leave it to the wise Jews in the every Jews generation. Are very wise. They drink a lot of wine. The French <laughs> rabbis. <laughs> the French. They're known as the romance rabbis. <laughs> in Paris. of Paris. Okay. However, <clears throat> okay, right. So, in other words, alright, so let, let's start this over. So, the Ritva explains, based on the French rabbis, that the reason it is true is because there are actually 49 honest ways that Hashem showed Maisha how to offer something, 49 ways how to matter something. We'll, we'll see what the significance of the number 49 is. But the point is that it's not like Hashem said, this is Aser, now let's see if you can figure out that it's Aser. He said, there's honest human intellectual ways of figuring out this is Aser, and honest human intellectual ways of figuring out this is Mutter. And there's no correct way, because again, we're not talking about halachas where Hashem told Maisha the answer. There is no answer. These 49 ways to go Tame or Tahar are both ways that can be used deriving them from the 13 Midos. So you can get those 49 ways to Aser, 49 ways to Mater, through the 13 Midos. There is no correct way. There's a halachic way, that which is agreed to by the Rove, the majority. But there's no correct way. He then hints that there is, in fact, a Kabbalistic explanation. Now, as we know, the number 49 has major Kabbalistic significance because the Midos, the emotional attributes, let's call them, are numbered 7. Chesed, Gevur, Tiferes, Netzach, and Malchus. And 7 times 7 is 49. Oui, oui. 
So you have Chesed of Chesed, you have Chesed of Gevura, you have Chesed of Teferis. These 49 are also the counting of the Svira. Each day is in Kabbalistic writings meant to correct a certain Mida of yours, a certain attribute of yours based on these 49 fundamental attributes. Now, each of us have a natural disposition to a certain Mida. We know that Avram was full of Chesed and Yitzchak was Gevura. We know that that dichotomy also exists why, uh, by Shammai and Hillel, where Hillel was more Chesed and Shammai was more Gevura. Now, based on these, um, let's say, natural attributes will influence the way that you see the Psak such that you can look at the same piece of information and based on your natural personality can come out with a different conclusion than somebody else. Now, I just want to be to be clear. This doesn't mean there's any bias. It's not like they're convoluting any information or misunderstanding information. What this means is Hashem set into Tyra 49 ways to understand it. And depending on what your natural disposition is, is how you'll you'll see one of the ways. So I don't know if anybody has been in a, in a yeshiva setting and have had conversations with people who think differently. A lot of times it's both are equally smart people. And they're both looking at the sources, and there's no real clear raya one over the other. And just one guy sees it this way, and the other guy sees it this way. You have people who are generally see the lacha in more stringent manners, and people who generally see the lacha in more lenient manners. But they're both using their full, you know, honest intellectual ability to get at it. And it's just a shem preset into Tyra these 49 ways of interpreting the text, interpreting the logic, interpreting the 13 midas that Shatar and Adresh been in order to reach these 13 conclusions, because it's important to have these. Sorry, these 49 conclusions, because it's important that each one of these 49 conclusions could play out to address a certain problem. Now, it's all, all good and well that the French rabbis decided to say that a bunch of contradictory psaks are all coming from Hashem, and Hashem gave them all over my ship. But where did this come from? So it's Gemar and Chagiga on Gimel and Medbez, discussing the Pusik and Kehalas of Bali Asufais Meiraya Echad. Which the Gemara explains to mean that while you have a bunch of Chachamim, and some are saying it's Aser, some are saying it's Mutter, some are saying it's Puzzle, some are saying it's Tameh, some are saying it's Tar, all of them are coming from one shepherd. All of them are coming from the mouse, mouth of Hashem, Tamaisha, Tas. And, and the puzzle concludes, as it says, Es Kol HaDvarim Eila, all of these things, meaning Hashem said all of these things, all of these different Machleksim that go on between the sages, even though they're literally opposites. It's Tame Tar, Puzzle, Kasher. Right, and, and this number, the number 4949, that comes from Gemara and Yushalmi in Sanhedrin, Perak Dalid, Halacha Beis, uh, which says that Hashem says to Maisha that you have to follow the Rife, but the Tar can be interpreted in these 98 ways 49 ways of Tar and 49 ways of Tame, 49 ways of Mutter, 49 ways of Usr. So this understanding of Elu Velo Divre Elokim Chaim has the most complete picture of being Elokim Chaim, Divre Elokim Chaim, because every single approach brought down in the Gemara is absolutely true, because we don't care if we pass in that way. We don't care if that's what we do, Lamaisa. We don't care if that's how you're going to put on tefillin or that's how you're going to do anything. What we care about is that their position was given by Hashem to Maisha. Now, again, not given as in the conclusive halacha, but given as an option, that these are the options, go ahead and figure it out. Now, there's also Gemara and Ervin on that same daf, earlier on that daf, 13b, where it says about Remeir, and it says that even his Talmud, Sumchus, of Remeir was able to give 48 reasons Latame and 48 reasons Latar. There was a certain Chacham who could give Purify Asherites with 150 reasons. Now, again, these were legitimate reasons. They weren't making things up. There wouldn't be no point of the Gemara. They're giving legitimate reasons because, again, within Tyra, there's a lot of flexibility of thought whereby you can come up with opposite opinions and both of them are sourced in the same 
Tyra, because Hashem preloaded all these different opinions in the Pasuk. Hashem did a magical trick. Most people, when they say something, they mean one thing. When Hashem said something in the Pasuk, he meant these 49 things that you can take out of the Pasuk. This idea is also mentioned explicitly in the Marsha on this Gemar and Chagiga 3. Well, this one is, is a Gimel Amad Aleph. But he says that all arguments that are said in the Gemar are all from the mouth of Hashem. And he quotes the Gemar in Shabbos that, that says that every word that Hashem spoke was broken into 70 Lashinais, is, the, is how the Gemar says it, which could literally be translated as languages, but the Marshas understand it to mean to 70 different like arguments or different ways of understanding him. And perhaps you can match that up with the idea of Shiv and Panam that the Torah can present itself in 70 separate facets. Now, a very interesting formulation of this idea actually comes from the Yamshul Shlomo in his Aktamala Bhavakama. And he says that all these opinions that all these Chum have, it's as if Maisha said all the opinions, even though Maisha never did. Because, the, again, there were no tradition on the Mechleksim. Hashem never told Maisha that, that this is the halacha or this is the halacha. Because the logic plus the transmission of facts that go into a Mechleikas is just as as compelling as a tradition man for man for Maisha Rabbeinu. Right? When two sages look at the axioms they're given and they look at the yugomidas and they use those yugomidas with precedent, with psukim, and come up with a conclusion, even though none of those things were said explicitly to Maisha Rabbeinu, all of those things is considered part of the Messiah as if Hashem had said it. Because again, Hashem preset all these ideas into the Torah, into Yugamidas. Now, the, he quotes the Mekubalim, and maybe this is the Mekubalim, the Kabbalist that Ritva was mentioning, as saying this idea even more powerful. Since all Neshames were at Har Sinai and received the words of Hashem through 49 conduit, and therefore each received the Torah's laws according to his unique soul. This is the kind of idea we were mentioning earlier. This produced the result that some would rule Tar, others rule Tame, and both would be comprehending truth. Because again, this is how they received the Torah. It's this sort of metaphysical idea that each soul that was at Harsinai experienced the laws in a slightly different manner, and therefore when it came down to the subjective laws, again, the laws that were not explicitly set over from Hashem to Moshe, they were able to reach conclusions that were different, but both sourced in the same Torah. Now, Tysus Rebbeinu Peretz, on this Gemara in Erevin, asks a beautiful question, which is one we mentioned earlier in the podcast. How can we say, even by historical machloiksim? Now, according to this third approach, that both positions are absolutely true. So I can say that a bug is kosher, and you can say that a bug is not kosher, and it's absolutely true that in a certain sense you can look at this and say that it's kosher and a certain and you can read the Torah and say that it's not kosher. And Hashem meant both of those options. And will only act in one of those ways, but the reality is both of them are meant. But how can I say that the Mizbeach, I'm just going to this example, I don't know if it's a real machlokas, but this Mizbeach <coughs> was both 10 Amas and 20 Amas wide. It was only one in reality. So he answers that both are actually truly sourced in the Psukim. Reading the Torah, and it's really, if you think about it, it's the exact same thing as with Halacha. Reading the Psukim and reading it with a proper understanding can yield two contradictory positions. It can yield the opinion that the Mizbech was 10 Amis and the opinion that the Mizbech was 20 Amis. Now, in reality, it was one or the other. But reading the Psukim, you would not, you cannot know one or the other. Now, maybe I can even say this in a slightly different manner, is that everybody knows the, the Torah... And the Chachamim, when they gave over historical facts, it wasn't to tell a story. 
When the Torah tells us the stories of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the Torah is not a history book. When the Gemara tells us a Gadata about all the details of Esamekdash or all the details in history that it gives over, it's not giving over history. It's giving over ideas. Every single Gemara, every single Pasuk that talks about an event portrays it in a way to give over. It's packed full of ideas. So now, when the Chacham had an ability to be Dairish Psukim, not only for Halacha, but also for Agadata, also for ideas, just like there were 13 meters of derivation for Halacha, there are 32 meters of derivation for Agadata. They had a way, a method of Drush. Now that method could yield different results. Now, the fact that only one of them happened historically is just like the fact that only one of them is practiced halachically. Historical just means that's the way Hashem wanted it to carry out in physicality. It doesn't mean that you can't read the Pasuk and get two ideas, meaning, let's take our classic one we asked about Mordechai. Was it his wife or was it his daughter? Or did he accept her as, a, as an orphan, uh, orphan? We don't care historically if it was his wife or an orphan. There's an idea behind her, Esther, being his wife, and there's an idea behind Esther being, his, being an orphan, that he just accepted her in as, as part of the house. Both those ideas are true, and both those ideas could equally be derived from the verses, using the methods of Drush. Ironically, I think we can apply the term Elu Velu Divrelikim Chaim to these three approaches also. I think all three of them are true in a certain context. Are we going to be using the second approach to synthesize all three approaches? The first approach is really from a halachic standpoint. Now, everybody would agree that just because Elu Velu doesn't mean I can poskin like Boshitas. Only one is true, and one is false in halacha. And therefore, the only purpose of having the second false opinion in terms of halacha is to better understand the first opinion. Because again, that helps for halacha. Because if you better understand the proper halacha, you'll have you'll have a, a better understanding of its uh, ramifications. Also, in the other approach, a mission and edius, why you mention the minority opinion, is so that nobody comes up with the wrong halacha. Again, it helps for halacha. If somebody comes and says, well, I have a tradition about this opinion, we have to mention, no, no, that's a minority opinion, so we don't have people following the wrong halacha. So from a strict halachic standpoint, there's a correct answer and an incorrect answer. But both are important for the halacha. But from a utility standpoint, in terms of which halachas we can use, well... There also, everybody would agree that in a certain time or a certain location, one halacha might be able to be used. Even the first opinion would agree that Bashas al Chak, in certain uh, circumstances, were able to use even the minority opinion, the negated false opinion. Right. So, Nobody's disagreeing in the town hold, in the town of Beishamai prior to the halacha being made universal like Basil, that it was a true sara for Beishamai's constituents. Right. In fact, we even have a Gemara in Shabbos which says that the, the inhabitants of a certain town were rewarded for following a position which ended up being thrown out. That's in Shabbos Kuflamad Amadala, for those of you who want to check our sources. So you can see that from a halachic standpoint, everybody would agree that one position is absolutely false. From a utility standpoint, everybody would agree that both positions can be true in certain circumstances, but are false in a certain utility standpoint also, because let's say in Beis Shammai's town, Beis Hill's position was false. So in the first position, the negated position is absolutely false. Even in the second position, in the non-context, in the context, in the incorrect context, the position is also false. But ultimately, everyone would agree that both positions are stemming from Torah and are 100% true. And 100% differently came Chaim, words that Hashem intuited or hid inside of his Torah. So again, we can say that all three approaches are true. If you're talking about a logic standpoint, you go with approach number one. 
If you're talking about a utility standpoint, you want to approach them too. If you're talking about an absolute truth sourced in the tire standpoint, approach number three is the one for you. Now, there's just one last thing we got to clean up before we uh, close this podcast, which is who does this apply to? So we saw it certainly applies, it would seem, to most Tanayan Amarayim conversations, right? So we have that Rashi and Ksubis, which applies differently Kim Chaim to any Machlaikis where they have a different Svara and are not arguing about a previous person's opinion, but they actually have their own Svara. We have we have uh, uh, Taisvus, right, in Rosh Hashanah that says that the Machlaikis, when the world is created, which are, again, two random Tanayim, is also differently Kim Chaim. So it seems certainly the Gemara, you know, in the Mishnah, you can say differently Kim Chaim to everything. But it seems from the later Achrayim that they would apply this even to Rashinim or any accepted terror source before him. So you have Arachayim um, in Shemais, in his commentary on Paraklamat Aleph, uh, verse 13, or, or Pasuk Yud Gimel, where he says that he's going to give a different approach than the earlier commentators, including Rashi. But he says, Chas v'shalom that they're wrong, because divreli kim, elu elu divreli kim chaim. And he was applying that to Rashinim, Mefar Shem on the Chumash, and he was saying, elu elu divreli kim chaim. More uh, impressively, or, or perhaps a more profound idea, is found in the Shla. So this is found in, in his Sefer Toldus Adam, in Beis Chachma Gimel, which is one of the bias. It's separated into ba- uh, Beisos, or, or, you know, houses. Batum, you know, it's proper grammar. And he says that it actually applies to every future Talmud Chacham who's using proper method of, 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 an, of analysis that Eluva Elu Divrili Kim Chaim and both of their or, and all of their opinions are sourced in Harsinai from Hashem the revelation of Harsinai. And this is actually sourced in a Medrash Rabban Shemais, um Chafches, Parsha Chafches, uh chapter six or or however they're separating the Medrash, which says all future Tamikhamim that will be leaders in every generation was Makabal all of his Khadushim from Harsinai. From the Pasuk Kol Gadol Yosef, it was a great sound that didn't stop, and it meant that every generation, all the leaders, would be receiving their inspiration, their Torah from our Sinai. And he says that's the meaning, the Shlach says that's the meaning of Elbeel Jerusalem Chaim, that you can apply it to every leader of every generation, all of his Chedushim come from our Sinai and are included in Elu Ve'elu Divrili Kim Chaim. So that concludes our episode today. I know the topic was a little bit boring, but if we spoke about woman one more time, I think we'd be flagged by the FCC. So we try to switch it up to real Tyra. But I uh, hope you guys enjoy. It's packed with information. Yeah, and obviously it was a very complicated topic. So if you, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Our email is jewishthoughtflow at gmail.com. We answer numerous messages We've even done private. We've even done private Zoom calls, believe it or not. So, you know. So please reach out with all your questions. I'm Avi Cohen. I'm Mati Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow. Bye.